Hey, I can think of no better place to be right now at the start on January 1st, the first day of a brand new year, to be in God's house with God's people, opening God's word, amen? We're gonna get this year started right. What is it that God wants of his church? That's what we're gonna look at today. And to do that, we gotta go back to the original blueprint for the church. Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter one, We're going to look at Acts 1, verse 1 through 11 today, and we're going to see what the original design was. It's been said that about every five years or so, churches ought to go back to the book of Acts to revisit their purpose, to kind of reset and re-engage with what God's design for us is to be. I heard a story sometime back about a rocky coastal land inhabited by a people who saw as their primary purpose the saving of lives. You see, offshore, out on the tumultuous sea, there were ships that would come and go, and these ships would strike rocks, and they would capsize. And so people from the shore, they would row out in little boats, and they would rescue the drowning people, and they'd bring them back to shore, they'd nurse them back to health, and they would integrate them into their society. They would train these people to do what they had been doing, saving lives. And that was their purpose. And between shipwrecks, there was a lot of downtime. And so this community, uh, to occupy their minds, occupy their hands, they, they decided to invest in their community. They, they decided to refurbish things. They started to build some buildings. And they built some fine upscale restaurants. And they built some nice hotels. And they built, uh, you know, they built some uh, movie houses. And they built a, a fine arts center for performing arts. And they built some pool halls and some arcades and such. And it became quite a pleasurable place to be. Kind of a destination. Kind of an entertainment hub, as it were. And in fact, they got so good at that that they started to, uh, you know, to see the whole life-saving enterprise as a bit of a nuisance, That distracted them from their newfound passion of the pursuit of pleasure. Well, this didn't sit well with some of the people who'd been there for a long time. And they said, no, wait wait, wait a minute. This is not who we are. This is not what we're about. And after much discussion, they decided to put in the lobbies of each of these big buildings that they built a sculpture of a shipwreck to remind them of their purpose. But these sculptures just ended up collecting dust. And over time, they they just gave up this enterprise of saving lives and all. They were no longer a life-saving station. They were an entertainment hub. Well, the original crowd, they didn't want to deal with that, so they said, we're going to split. And they went off and they formed their own life-saving station up the coast. But over time, that that life-saving station, well, they went through the same mess, and it ended up splitting into two. And then the next life-saving station split into two. And then that life-saving station split into two. And before long, it was so diluted in the, the original purpose that today, if you were to travel to that coast, you would see all these buildings, all these palatial architectural wonders, each with a shipwreck sculpture in its lobby, but no actual saving of lives going on whatsoever. Meanwhile, out on the seas... Ships would continue to sink, and the voices of the drowning would fade beneath the waves. Kind of a sad story, but an accurate picture of the church. You see, the church was originally designed to be a life-saving station. And yet, 
nationwide, globally, over the years, the church has become preoccupied with some other things. Oh, we still have uh, symbols and such in our lobbies that indicate what our original purpose was for, but in reality, we've become obsessed with, with some cultural things, with some entertainment prospects and the likes. And we need to go back to the blueprint to see what God intended for the church to be. And we're gonna do that today by looking at Acts chapter one. And I'm excited about this message today. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time and your word today. Lord, we are your church. As we sang just a few moments ago, build your church, build it from the ground up. You build it, God. You have called us out, the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, called according to your purpose, God. And we wanna come alongside what you are doing. Would you show us today by your word and by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Book of Acts is a, is a wonderful book. Uh, we're gonna be in this book today. Now next week, I'll just let you know, I, I'm gonna start something very exciting. I don't know when the last time you did this is, but we are going to start a new series next week. We're going to study through an entire book of the Bible. We're going to do a study of the book of Ephesians. And that begins next Sunday, so don't miss it, all right? And Ephesians deals greatly with the institution of the church. But before we get into that great epistle of Paul, we're going to look at the original blueprint of the church. Now, the church was born in Acts chapter 2, but the, the blueprint we see unveiled here in Acts chapter one. Now this book, Acts, is an extremely important book in, in your Bible. If your Bible didn't have Acts in it, why... Uh, it would lose all credibility, you see, because in your notes, the book of Acts validates the gospel. Did you know that? It validates the gospel. Without Acts, the gospels don't really amount to much because the gospels are prophetic of the book of Acts. Jesus, uh, you know, he tells uh, his disciples that he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. When does he actually do that? He does that in the book of Acts. He tells the disciples, I got a job for you to do. When do they actually flesh that out and do that job? They do it in the book of Acts. He tells the disciples, I'm gonna ask the Father, he's gonna give you another who's just like me. He will be with you, be in you. It's the promised Holy Spirit. When does the Holy Spirit come? He comes in the book of Acts. And so Acts fulfills the gospel. Secondly, in your notes, the book of Acts serves as the standard for the church. How many of you know that to be successful, you need a standard? You don't just decide to be a success on your own and you make it so. You need a standard. Uh, we got any woodworkers in here? Anybody like to work? Yeah, I mean, we're in North Carolina, right? Yeah, we got people who like to work with wood. Uh, Pastor Sean, I was at his house the other night. He's an old cabinet maker, and so he knows how to work with wood. I've seen some of his stuff, pretty nice. But when you cut several pieces of wood, and they all need to be the exact same size and shape, how do you go about doing that? What do you use as a guide? Was it the most recent piece of wood that you cut? You just keep basing your cut off of the most recent cut? No, you gotta go back to the original piece. If you want them to all be the same, to be appropriate, right? The right length, the right shape. And so churches today, we're always looking at what's happening now. We're looking at the church down the street. We're looking at who's blowing and going over here and over there. We gotta go back to the original blueprint. And so Acts is the standard. And so we're looking at the record of the constitutional fathers of the church. This is how the church is supposed to look. Very, very simple. The early church didn't have a lot of the stuff that we got. They didn't have big buildings. They didn't have a whole slew of programs. They didn't have all these resources and a budget and all this stuff. Why, how on earth did they do ministry without all that? 
Now, no, there's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm grateful for our building. It's a blessing. I'm grateful for the programs that we have. I'm grateful that we have resources and a budget. We're going to vote on that budget after the service today. All right? Those are realities associated with the present day church. But when those things are seen as other than what they are, which is tools, and they, they take center stage, well, then you got a problem. Then you got a problem. And so we're going to look at our fundamental purpose. We're going to make the main thing the main thing. Now, Luke, Luke breaks this section, uh, excuse me, this passage down into sections. And the first section is verses one through three. And what he's going to do in your notes is he's going to connect the church and the gospel. And here's how he does it. Look at verse one. It says, in the first book. Now, what, what is he referring to there? In the first book. What is the first book that Luke is talking about? It's the gospel of Luke. All right? Same author as Luke's gospel. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, all right, you might remember in the Gospel of Luke, how does it start? It starts this way, O Theophilus. Trivia question, who is the individual to whom more Scripture is directly addressed than any other person in Scripture? It's this guy, Theophilus. Now, who is that? I don't know. No idea. Friend of Luke's, I guess, okay? But Gospel Luke is addressed to him. Book of Acts is addressed to him. His name in Greek means friend of God. How many of you are a Christian? Okay, all right. You know what? You're a friend of God. You're a friend of God. It may be that Luke knew that this would eventually end up in the hands of every believer on planet Earth. And if you are a Christian, you are a friend of, you're a Theophilus of sorts. You may as well put your own name right in there. All right, and so he says in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So in that gospel, we see what he went and did and taught. Verse two, until the day when he, Christ, was taken up. And that is a reference to his ascension. We're gonna look at his ascension in this passage. He ascended after he had, and here in verse two and following, we're going to get the purpose of the church. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. If you have your Bible in front of you, next to that verse with the word commands, you can write the word in capital letters, why. Why are we here? Okay, and Luke is tying uh, the commands of Christ to this, this central command that he gave his disciples at the end of the Gospels. What is the central command that Christ gave the disciples at the end of the Gospels? What do we call that? There's a word we are, a term that we use. What do we call that? The Great Commission. Very important. And so Luke is saying, hey, remember that Great Commission? That end of the Gospel? I'm gonna begin the book of Acts with the same command. And in Matthew, it's go and make disciples of all peoples. In Mark, it's go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In Luke, it's proclaim to the nations. In John, it, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And so Luke is bringing it up again because it's important. Amen? It's the great commission. It's not the great suggestion. All right? We're to do it. So in your notes, why are we here? Preach Christ. That's what we're here to do. We're here to preach Christ. That word commands, Greek word is entelo. There's a root there, telos. It, the, the word telos means finish. Finish. 
This is not just God giving us a command for the sake of giving us a command. There's an expectation. We are expected to finish. We're expected to see it through. You got kids? When you, when you tell them to do something, are you just talking to hear your head rattle? Huh? Clean your room. And then you walk away and you come back and it ain't done. Bed's made, but you are going to trip if you try to walk in this room. The floor is a clutter. Did they obey? No, they didn't finish. They got started, but they didn't finish. There's an expectation. That's why it's the Great Commission. It's a severe order. I want you to do this. If the church isn't doing this, we are not an obedient church. And when a church gets this, here's what we are to do, then they are a healthy church. And they don't get into trouble. Churches that are evangelistic, churches that preach Christ, preach the gospel, and they understand the gospel, they don't get into heresy. They don't fall off the deep end theologically. They don't get distracted, okay? But churches that don't get this, Bible study only serves to make their head puffy, all right? They get preoccupied with entertainment. They get preoccupied with, with uh, uh, programs and things like that. When I think of like the USO and they go overseas, you know, in wartime and they entertain the troops, if you looked at that and you said, you know, the purpose of the military is entertainment. Well, that's ridiculous. What's the purpose of the USO? It's to reinvigorate the troops. So we can do events, we can have programs, but the purpose is to feed the flock so that ultimately we are refreshed and recharged and we can go and do what we are called to do. And so when a church doesn't get this, they go haywire. And so they've got to focus on an outlet. You need an outlet. You don't just come here and get fed and get poured into and then it just doesn't go anywhere. The truth of the gospel has got to flow out of you. You need an outlet. If you've been to Israel, there's a body of water in the south of that country called the Dead Sea. And what happens is the Jordan River flows into it, but nothing flows out of it. It just sits there. It stagnates. It evaporates. It's filled with salt. Nothing is alive uh, it, it, because it's, 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 the salinity is the highest of any body of water on earth. It's at the lowest point on earth. Nothing can live in there. It's a fun place to visit because you, you just float, okay? You'll never drown in it, but, but you, you can't survive in it. And that's because there's no outlet. By contrast, the Sea of Galilee up north in, in Israel, sparkling, vibrant, filled with life. Why? Because water flows into it, water flows out of it. Same with the Christian life. You gotta have an inlet and an outlet to be healthy, to be full of life. If not, you are functioning as one who is dead. And so that's why we're here to preach the gospel. Now, he said that uh, these commands were given through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he chosen. How were they given? Through the Holy Spirit. So we know the why. Now we look at the how in your notes. How do we obey? We do it through the Holy Spirit. We do it through the Holy Spirit. He gave these commands. We're gonna see the Holy Spirit referenced a couple times in this passage. And, uh, and what we need to understand here is that you, church, cannot do what God has asked you to do. You. You cannot do it. You need something outside of yourself to come into you, to empower you. All right? If we could accomplish the purpose of God by building a building, done. We did it. 
If we could accomplish the primary purpose of God by having a whole bunch of programs in the church, we could do that. If we could accomplish the purpose of God by meeting people's physical needs, okay, we could do that. If we could accomplish the purpose of God by standing up for moral issues, standing against evil like abortion and such, we could do that. Now, all those things are worthy to invest our time in. Are they the primary directive? No, they're, they're ancillary to the, they're still worthy, but they're not this fundamental mission of preach the gospel. You don't need to be a Christian to do some of that other stuff. You can meet people's physical needs and not be a believer in Jesus Christ. You could stand against abortion and not be a believer in Jesus Christ. But this thing called the gospel, this is a supernatural message. This is a message of an event that happened in time, in history. God sent his son who became a man and he lived a perfect life, died for our sins on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That message is of a supernatural act by a supernatural being. It is a supernatural message. It must be delivered in a supernatural way and you need a supernatural power to do it. And so he says this happens by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we, we got to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, he empowers us to do it. And when we talk about that power, uh, what, are we, what is the content of that message? Uh, well, I've affirmed it as the gospel, as, as Christ coming. Paul would say, here's the gospel that we preach to you, that, that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, rose Three days later, according to the scriptures. Folks, that's the gospel. The gospel is not the prosperity gospel. It's not God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. The gospel is not the social gospel. You know, we gotta, we gotta make sure needs are met. The gospel is not the moral gospel. You gotta live according to the precepts of God and, and uh, uh, be obedient. Some of that's good, right? The gospel is not merely love God, love people. Sounds nice. The gospel is specifically the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our message. And he affirms that in verse three. It says that he, Christ, presented himself alive to them, to his followers, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them. So he would come and go miraculously. After he rose from the dead, he would appear to the disciples intermittently. How long? During 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Christ would just show up 40 days after the resurrection, before he ascended, he would come and go. And, and, and Luke says that he would offer them proofs. What kind of proofs? Well, he, he would say, he would appear to them as he did in, the, in, the, in a locked room even. He'd just show up miraculously and he would show them his wounds. Hey guys, check it out. Tom, Thomas, come here. Thomas, put your finger right there. See that? That's where the spear pierced me, right there. Right in there. And then look here, see these nail prints? These are proofs. I died. It was a literal death. I didn't swoon. I didn't faint. They slew me. My body was laid in a tomb. I was dead. Three days, that body laid in that tomb. And then, obviously, I rose because I'm right here. I stand before you. Physical resurrection. Proofs. Okay? And so this is a historic time and space message with a supernatural uh, aspect to it. Why are we here? The gospel. 
How do we deliver it? Uh, We don't deliver it on our own. We have the Holy Spirit that does it through us. What are we to preach? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, you with me so far? All right, we've talked about how, what, uh, and uh, why. Now we're gonna look at when. When are we? When does the church fall in human history? When does this entity, this organism called the Bride of Christ, exist in the grand scheme of things on, on the vast timeline of man? Has it always been here? No. No, it appears in Acts 2 in proper form. It's here today. So what is our place in time? Look at verse three. Uh, The way that it ends, it says that he was speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom. I want you to underline the word kingdom because that is a clue as to when we are in history. If I were to ask you, what is the kingdom of God? What would you say? Some of you might say, well, that's that's, got to be the church, right? That's the church. It's all Christians. We're all the kingdom. This is the kingdom. This is part of the kingdom right here. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are part of his kingdom. Uh, Yes and no. Yes and no. If you have trusted Christ, you have committed to being a subject in a kingdom that is yet to fully come. It is not a fully realized kingdom on the earth. There is a kingdom of God. It's coming in full. We got a glimpse of it right here, but it it is not fully realized here yet. So if we're not the kingdom right now, then what are we? In your notes, here's when we are in history. We're in something called the age of grace. The age of grace. This is the age preceding the kingdom. We call this the church age. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? The church age. I'm going to teach starting in April. I'm going to get into a prophecy study uh, that's going to run about eight weeks in April. And I hope that you come on Wednesday nights for that. But I want you to see what this age is. We're going to get a, a, a reference to it in verse 6. Christ is going to reference it again. Excuse me, the angel is going to reference it in verse 11. But there are indications in this passage that this, this time in which you and I live, this is not the last of God's doings on the earth. There is something coming. There is something beyond this age right here. You and I are not the end game. Okay? But we are in a very important time period because there is an age coming beyond this. And we don't know when it's coming. And we got a job to do right now. Otherwise, when you and I get saved, when we trust Christ, get baptized, all that stuff, why don't we just get raptured to heaven right then and there? Because there's a job to do. And it's in preparation of this age that is to come. Okay? So if you recall the Lord's Prayer, what does part of the Lord's Prayer say? It says, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth, how? As it is in heaven. Where is God's will always done? In heaven. Is God's will always done on the earth? (laughs) No, God's will is not always done on the earth. God's will is not always done in church. God's will is not always done in my house, okay? It's not done on the earth. All you got to do is turn on the TV or pick up a newspaper or whatever. Quickly, you will realize, oh, no, God's will is not being done 
it ain't being done. It is being done in heaven. It is always done in heaven. There is a time coming when God's will will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And that time is called the kingdom. And so this is a time that is coming. Uh, You know, Christ says at the end of the Great Commission, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Which age? This age. The church age. The age of grace. And guess what? There's another age beyond this. So I'm with you until I return. He's with us through the Spirit, and then he's going to be physically with us in person on the earth. Jesus put it this way in the Gospels. He, he asked him, he says, do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Look, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. If you know agriculture, you know when those wheat fields are white, it's time to get that wheat in the barn. If you don't, it's, it's about to rot. You're going to lose it. I'm from the Midwest. Those farmers know. The fields are white. It's, they're not like, yeah, we got time. No, it's, we got to go. So what's communicated here is there is a sense of urgency. You are here for a limited time. You need to sense the urgency because this age is not going to last forever. And so Jesus talks about his coming. He says, I'm coming back. Get to work. And so after connecting us with the gospel in these first three verses, now Luke is going to connect us with the Old Testament in your notes, the church and the Old Testament. We've looked at why we're here. We've looked at how we do what we're called to do. We looked at what the content of that message is. We've looked at when we are. And now we're going to look at who we are as a people. Look at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. All right, now this is very, very important. You heard this from me. He's saying, boys, remember what I told you? What did he tell him in the upper room? He says, I'm gonna ask the Father, and he's gonna give you another, just like me. Who's he talking about? The Holy Spirit. Was that the first time the Holy Spirit has ever been referenced in Scripture? No. Where do we first see the Holy Spirit spoken of? In the Old Testament, in the prophets, in Isaiah, in Joel, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel. Who is the Holy Spirit promised to? Israel. He's gonna pour his spirit out on Israel in those last days. Christ came, God's promised Messiah. What'd they do with him? They rejected him. And so now God has opened up that promise to beyond Israel to a bunch of Gentiles. Are you glad about that? I'm pretty glad about that. I'm glad to get in on this promise. So who are we as a people in your notes? We are partakers of something promised first to Israel. I'm so glad that he opened this up beyond Israel, that it was extended to us. And so Jesus tells these boys, he says, don't leave Jerusalem. Why? You're to wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Why does he want them to wait? Because he doesn't want them to go off in their own power. He's seen their work, you know? He's seen Peter and company. He knows they can be a little hasty. Peter just cut a guy's ear off for Pete's sake, okay? They can be a little rash. They can go off half-cocked. We ever do that? You ever rely on your own power? You ever get to thinking you're all that in a bag of chips and you try to do things and, and you get a little puffy-headed, huh? I've done that a lot, man. I remember when I was in high school, I was taking a music theory class. I was not doing so great 
in music theory. The teacher happened to be the, the band director at, at the high school there, and he called me up after class. He goes, uh, Scott, come on up here. I said, yeah. He said, uh, listen, I've got some extra credit opportunities for you. I said, oh, great. He goes, yeah, you're going to need it. I said, okay. All right, what is it? He said, well, how, how do you feel about being in the marching band? I said, well, I, I, don't play, I don't play any band instruments. He goes, no, 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 it's okay. You, you could be the banner carrier. Oh, the, the, the banner carrier? He goes, yeah, 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 it's great. He goes, I need two guys, and there's a long pole. It's like 12 feet or so, and each guy stands on one end, holds that pole. There's a banner that hangs down in the middle. It says, Roosevelt High School Rough Rider Marching Band, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And you just march. You're right in front of the band as we go and march. You're, you're very, very visible. I'm like, great. Yeah. He goes, oh, yeah. And you wear this uniform. You got these pants, you know, with the fringe down the side and these little plastic shoes. And you got a jacket with the shoulder pads. You wear this hat with a chin strap. And uh, you wear these little gloves. And what do you say? And I'm thinking, I'd rather have a social life, you know. And I said, well, yeah, thanks, uh, but I don't, I don't think so. He goes, well, that's too bad because without this extra credit, you're probably going to fail this class. I said, where's your dressing room? <laughs> and so I, I committed and I got up every morning early, crack of dawn. I was out on that field, 6 a.m., marching with that band in the cold South Dakota, windy weather, mid-February. Folks, the wind in South Dakota cuts through band uniform fabric like a hot knife through butter. It's not fun. All right, and I had the drum corps right behind me. And it was giving me a headache, and I hated every moment of it for a time. And I was out there, and it was uncomfortable, and I felt like I looked stupid, and it was cold, and it was awkward, and I had a headache. But you know what happened over time? I got good. I got good. I was like, man, I'm getting this. I got this. Yeah, look at me. Hey, I make this look good. I make it look good. And I started to really kind of be inflated with myself. You know, and I started to really get into it. And I had an ego about it, you know. And finally, all my hard work paid off. We had the big day. It arrived, the Festival of Bands. Big event, yearly in Sioux Falls. Schools from the tri-state area descended on our downtown region. And it was a contest. All these marching bands and people would come in from all the surrounding communities, aligning the streets to watch it were, were, were hundreds, dozens of people. <laughs> and the news crews came out and it was a competition. And so we would compete against other bands and there were judges and we would march along down the parade route and I'd do this awkward heel toe thing that I had mastered, of course. And then these judges would come out and they had their little notepads and they'd get it right up in your face and they'd score you and they'd, they, or they'd deduct points based on your posture and your cadence and your presentation and all this stuff. And you couldn't look at them or they'd dock you, you know? And so I'm standing right here and I got this judge over here and I'm like, I'm not looking at you, dude. I'm not, I'm focused, I'm focused, you know? And I'm marching along and as we're going down this parade route, I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm leading these guys. Like, I'm necessary, you know? And I, I'm pretty proud with myself, happy with myself, until I look down at the end of the parade route and I see traffic cones. And I think, uh-oh, what am I supposed to do at the end of the parade? I'm sure he told me, but I don't, I don't remember. It's probably because I was so inflated in my head that I wasn't paying attention. I didn't assume I needed to listen to him, the director. And so I'm going down there. I go, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what, what, do I do? what do I do? Do I turn right? Do I turn left? Do I stop? I can't stop. The drum corps will be, run me and my little banner buddy over. 
And I'm yelling through clenched teeth to the other guy on the banner. I go, hey, guy, what do we do? We turn right away. And he couldn't hear me because of the donk, 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 donk. And the director is running along the band. He could tell Grimm's in trouble. He doesn't know what he's doing. And he's yelling, turn, Scott, turn. And he's yelling the direction to turn, but I can't hear him because of the drums. And so we, those cones are getting larger and larger. And I got to commit. I got to make a decision. It's go time. And I turn left. I pivot my feet. My banner buddy follows me. And we march and we turned left. The band turned right. And we had no idea. We kept marching, just as proud and as confident as we could be, because I still had the echo of the donk, dick, donk, dick, dick, donk, donk, in my head. I thought they were right behind me. They were long gone. Until a helpful young man from the crowd ran up, tapped me on the shoulder, and he goes, Hey, your band went the other way, dude. And I turned, and I looked at my banner buddy, and I dropped the banner, ego down, crash and burn. Folks, when we, when we think we're all that, we can do it on our own. The, the results can be disastrous. Jesus says, wait. This power is not in you. You are not enough. Wait for the promise of the Father. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the prophecy of the Spirit. Spirit would come in Acts 2. Now, you and I aren't waiting for the Spirit. He's there. He's come. You just got to receive him if you haven't already. But if you were born again, you have the Spirit. You're not in need of a second baptism. You've got all the Spirit you need, but you need to rely on it. You've got to obey. You have to be a steward of the power that is in you. And this is in your notes. We're not just recipients, but stewards of blessing. Follow the lead of the Spirit. And so the next thing that Luke does is he connects the church and the kingdom. And so we've looked at why we're here. We've looked at how we do what we're called to do. We've looked at what is the content of that message. We've looked at who we are as a people, when we are as a church. Now we're going to look at where we're heading. So in verse 6, they had come together. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, these disciples, these are good Jewish boys. They've read their Bibles. They know the prophets. And the prophet Zechariah had written that the Messiah would, would set foot right where they are right now. Where are they? They're at the Mount of Olives, which is this mount that overlooks Jerusalem. And the prophecy is that from the Mount of Olives, the Messiah will go forth and establish his kingdom. So they're just putting two and two together. They're like, is it now? Is it now? Here we are. We're on the Mount of Olives. You're the Messiah. You just rose from the dead. Is it now? You going to do it? And so that implies that they, they understand the prophecy. Is it now? No. Not at this time. Because in your notes, the kingdom is a literal future event. There is an age coming. We call it the millennial age, the kingdom age. It is a literal reign of Christ on the earth. He's going to return at a, at a certain point. 
and he will establish an actual physical kingdom on the earth. This is prophesied in scripture. Did the disciples get that it was literal? Yes, hence their question. Did they understand that it was future? No. And so Jesus tells them in verse seven, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. He's like, don't worry about that. A lot of people worry about that. Uh, And by the way, nobody knows when this is gonna happen. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. If you think you know when Jesus is coming back, I I advise you to just keep your mouth shut so you don't look like a fool. Because the Bible is clear, nobody knows. If you're listening to some teacher on the radio or on a podcast and they say they know, we had a guy in California named Harold Camping and he duped a whole bunch of people into giving his ministry money because he, he said Jesus is gonna return on this date and the world's gonna end and that date came and went. Idiots have been doing this forever. You, you, have, you had a book back in 1988 called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. He had a follow-up book in 1989. It did not sell as many copies. <laughs> Jesus says it's not for you to know times or seasons. Now, in saying that, he is not denying that this is a literal kingdom that is coming. He's just saying it's none of your business when it happens. In fact, he affirms that it is happening because he says... Times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. There is a fixed date known to God when this is happening. What's the implication here? It's coming. You better get busy because your job is to recruit subjects for that kingdom. A kingdom has subjects. That's why we're still here. That's why we haven't been raptured to glory because he's got a job for us to do. It's the great commission. Go out, share the gospel so that those people can be part of this coming kingdom. But it is a literal future event. And in verse seven, he affirms that. But it's, it's something known to God. Jesus, excuse me, Paul tells the Athenians, Acts 17, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. See, he's not just coming to establish a kingdom. There's a judgment associated with this. That means it's all the more urgent for us to share the gospel with people. We're all going to be judged. Everybody you know is gonna be judged. Uh, but, he, but nobody knows. So in your notes, there is something that we don't know. We don't know the time of judgment. Okay? Who knows it? God and God alone. Did you know not even Jesus at this point knew? In Mark, he says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. There was this divine self-limiting of knowledge regarding this timing. So there's something we don't know, but there is something that we do know in your notes. We do know the will of God. Did you, do you know the will of God? Some of you go, uh, no. A lot of people struggle with this, this. It's this mysterious concept, the will of God. Folks, I worked for years with young adults They're obsessed with knowing God's will for their life. And that's how they say, how do I know God's will for my life? Most of the time when people want, they talk about the will of God, they say, I just want to know God's will for my life. What is God's will for my life? Oh, I wish I knew what God's will for my life was. 
if you could just trim those last three words off of that sentence, you'd be doing much better. Don't ask, what is God's will for my life? Ask, what is God's will? Because there's an answer to that question. His, his will is revealed in scripture. You just don't approach it with selfish intent. David never wrote, Lord, teach me to know your will. He wrote, teach me to do your will, implying that his will is revealed in scripture. God's will is, is all over the place. Every command is God's will. Everything he tells us to do. He wants you to be in fellowship with him. He wants you to be in community with his people. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to, to uh, read and study the word of God. He wants you uh, to share the hope and the faith that is in you. That's what he wants. What is God's will for you? You want to know what God's will for your life is? I know what it is. Does that sound arrogant? I'll tell you what it is. God's will for your life is to live a holy life and glorify him through the faithful preaching of the gospel. That's God's will for your life, for my life, every believer. Every believer. You are an instrument to accomplish his fundamental purpose because you are part of his glorious church, the bride. In verse eight, he says this, but you are not gonna do this on your own. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would, would work a little differently than it does today. He does, not it. It's a he. He's a he. The Holy Spirit would, would come upon people like, like Samson, like Gideon, temporarily for a specific purpose. You know, Gideon would go out there, he'd, he'd take a jawbone of a donkey and through the power of the Spirit, he'd slay the Philistines and then the Spirit would leave and then the Spirit would come back. Whenever God wanted to accomplish a specific purpose through somebody in the Old Testament, that's what he would do. He doesn't work like that anymore. Since Acts chapter two, the Spirit has come, people receive the Spirit and he indwells them permanently. He does not leave you. And so now you are permanently indwelled, but you can also at times be filled through your surrender of your life and will to that spirit. And that is where the power comes from. And Christ says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be, and this is the rearticulation of the Great Commission, you will be my witnesses. Where? Everywhere. Specifically, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, if, if you were those disciples, you would understand what that geography implied. Where's Jerusalem? Right where they are. They're in Jerusalem. That's their locality. Samaria and Judea is the surrounding greater region. Okay? And then the end of the earth is everything beyond that. So where, do, where are we to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here there, everywhere. Why do we associate the Great Commission with out there? Zimbabwe, Uganda, Brazil, China, you know, overseas, foreign mission. Folks, uh, you know, so, so I've heard some people say, why is, why is Grace Christian Academy uh, got a line item under missions? Because we're about the making of disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, 
and the ends of the earth. And what better way to raise up disciples according to God's will and purpose than to start right here with young people, raise them up in the admonition and the knowledge of the the word and the will of Jesus Christ, train them so that they might go into Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas and the ends of the earth. That sounds like a pretty good plan to me. That sounds like great commission ideology to me. And so we are to have this approach. And in verse 9 says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And what it means when it says that he was lifted up, it means he was lifted up. He was literally lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. This was a physical body they saw elevated and up into the heavens. Okay? This was not, you know, liberal theologians try to say, well, this means he was lifted up in their hearts. No, it doesn't. It means he, God took him. This is an ascension. Okay? He went back to his father like he said he would do. And I could just, I could just picture these disciples just standing there going, Until, until we see what happens here. Verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And I believe these are members of the angelic realm. Who knows? This, these may be the same angels that were at the empty tomb. And they say to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Shut your mouths, boys. Okay? You're drooling on the ground here. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Meaning, uh, hey, fellas, listen, uh, he's coming back. You better get busy, okay? It's not for you to know when he's coming back. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. Time is short. Get to work. The kingdom age is next. Judgment is next. We've got a job to do. And this ascension gives us hope, folks. It gives us a hope and an urgency. There are three things Christ's ascension means briefly here. First of all, we've got security. That Christ went up, there is security for you and I in your notes because he's at the right hand of God the Father. You know what he's doing there? He's interceding for you and me. He is pleading for us, Scripture says. And so we've got security. You cannot be stripped from his hand. He rose, you're gonna rise, okay? He is positioned in glory, you have a position in glory because of him. We have security. Secondly, in your notes, we've got power because of Christ's ascension. When the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand, that is a statement. To be at someone's right hand is to be an instrument of their authority and their will. Christ is at the right hand of God. As such, all the purposes of God are executed through Christ. He died. He conquered sin. uh, He conquered Satan. He conquered death through his resurrection. Now... All that the Father gives to him will come to him. And Paul says to the Ephesians that God has raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. We sang about this, by the way. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. And then the third thing that we have because of Christ's ascension is we've got hope. 
This is the blessed hope of the Christian because yes, he left, but he's coming back. How many of you believe Christ is coming back? You believe that? Amen. Let me ask you an equally important question. Do you live like you believe he's coming back? Are you living like it? You don't know when he's coming back. It could be before I finish this sermon. Are you living like it? Listen, in your notes, let your future dictate your present. Let's not get distracted from the main thing. He's coming back. We've got a job to do. Let's start 2023 right. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the honor of being among your people to worship together, to pray together, to study your word together. God, I thank you for the word, the encouragement, and the challenge found in the words that we have looked at here in this marvelous chapter of Acts today. I pray a blessing upon everybody in this room. I pray an empowerment for all of us throughout the coming year. You've brought us this far, Lord. You didn't end the world in 2022. We're still here, which means you're not done with us before your return. May we be faithful and do it through your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.